So a lot of the things that we deal with are unspoken. And I think now we have to speak them and we have to address them and we have to really talk about them. And I think on both sides, we have to be open to be uncomfortable um, because these are uncomfortable things to talk about. If I organically really tell you how I feel as a person of color all the time, I need somebody who is not of color to be open to hear it without feeling that I'm attacking them, but I'm really just speaking my truth. Mm -hmm. But on the same token, I have to give you as a person who's not of color without the same experiences, the opportunity to have a dialogue about either what my words meant, how you perceive them, and even if you're not sure the validity of them. But we have to just really be able to talk. From the studio of Rule 29, I'm your host, Justin Ahrens, and this is Design Of. And for this episode, we felt that we wanted to help be a part of the conversation. The conversation about Black Lives Matter, privilege, and the system that exists in America. Whether you're a person of color or white, I realize that these are tough conversations, but ones that are so needed. We believe for things to change, we have to get uncomfortable. We need to be open, we need to relearn, and so much more. But what we can't do is nothing. So I asked my friend Nicole Carter, who works with families in the Bronzeville community on the south side of Chicago, to join me on a Zoom call to have what I hope continues to happen around our country, which are vulnerable, honest, unfiltered, authentic conversations between people who are committed to listening, caring, and learning from each other. I hope you listen to the whole show as I stumble through this conversation and think about where you are at today and what kind of world you hope to see in the future. So Nicole, before we start, I, I just want to say thank you for so many things. First of all, I'm very grateful for you to be in my life for for a myriad of reasons. But one of my favorite is just uh, I love our conversations that we've had to, um, we've had in the past, and I and I hope that we continue to have more in the future. So thank you for that. Yes. And for also being on an advisory board, um, it's really special for me as we as we um, grow that and want to make sure that we, as we, um, our goal as a certified B corporation, but also just our goal as humans is to um, do what we can to have a more diverse community, not figuratively, but literally. And uh, so um, I really value your input. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. I always enjoy our conversations and um, I think it's just really special that we can continue what we started organically you know, just sitting down with each other and just sharing thoughts in our hearts as people and as parents um, and how that really kind of informs where we are, not just you and I, but kind of where we are as people. Just, it's it's amazing how things organically happen. So I'm, I'm honored to be with you today and to have this conversation. And of course, one of many that are to come and yeah. then to be a part of Rule 29, which I think is an amazing organization that does quality work. Um, and I feel like, you know, you all are part of my family. So, you know, like I send messages to Dawn, like she's my sister too. So I just yeah. love, I just love what we've created. So I'm, I'm overjoyed to be here. So I am Nicole Carter. I am a wife and I'm a mom of a wonderful three-year-old. And uh, by way of profession, I am the Senior Program Director at Bright Star Community Outreach. 
And basically what my job is, is I make sure that all of our programs um, have a level of accountability, um, that we all roll up to our overall goal, which is to reduce the effects of trauma and violence in the Chicago community. Um, we do that in a myriad of ways through several different programs. Um, we don't think that the answer to trauma and violence is linear, so we can't address it as such. We have about 11 different programs that any, at any given time that really help to address those ills. I am a proud alum of Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which is the number one HBCU in the nation. Um, so there I got a degree in English. Uh, after that, I kind of worked a little bit, did a lot of different things. Um, one of the things specifically that I did was I opened the first Hope 6 model in the nation. So to give you a little background on that, so when they started tearing down the housing projects, they started building mixed income communities. The first one was built in Atlanta, um, and that was really in the wake of the Olympics coming to Atlanta. So. Um, there are lots of housing projects that surrounded the downtown area, so they tore those down and they rebuilt them with mixed income. And I was actually the first manager of the very first one in the nation. Wow. Um, and, yeah, it's pretty cool. So when I worked there, I realized that no matter what socioeconomic level a family may have, whether they were our, our zero renter, which means they were extremely low income, or they were able to pay $1,000, that families were in trouble. And so that caused me to get uh, a master's in marriage and family therapy. And so that really was just kind of my way to help. For a little while, I did do counseling, um, but I used that in my daily work. Uh, one of the things that marriage and family therapists believe in are systems. Um, really, if you think of it like dropping a pebble in the pond, it doesn't just affect one place, but there are many ripples. And so marriage and family therapists think about the ripples. So even in the work that I do now with Bright Star, I think about the ripples. What are the layers of effects that one single act can have? And so that helps me to think through programming as well as how we engage with the community. That's awesome. I didn't know about the Atlanta um, project. That's pretty great. Yeah, it's fun. Well, that was a really great segue to ripples. <laughs> so uh, let's, what I'm excited about on this episode is you and I are basically having a conversation that we um, are interested in having, you know, uh, I'm gonna frame it more with the current context. So uh, Black Lives Matter um, is um, ever present, um, but it's very present right now. And I was very interested in having a conversation with you to talk about what that means, what that looks like from communities of a color, um, how uh, those who are not from that community, right, um, uh, can talk about it, ask questions, listen, because what's been interesting for us, um, and when I say us, I'm talking about um, my family and also um, my teammates, is having conversations of value, right? Um, and when I say value, I'm talking about those conversations where we look at ourselves, uh, our biases, our privilege, and all that sort of thing, um, and really take steps to where this isn't just a moment. I really want this moment um, to be an opportunity to reframe what we know and like what's 
our normal. So I think about it um, in my context and hearing things like Black Lives Matter or even the debate between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, I think it's hard. Um, these are really, really difficult conversations that we have to have. And a lot of it feels personal in its attack, um, in its premise, even in, even in this level of um, maybe what feels like accusation. Um, when people of color talk about privilege, right? Um, everybody, that word may not resonate with everybody. Um, I think there's this ethereal thought about what privilege is. Privilege means affluence or privilege means money or lack of struggle. Um, but as I define it, especially in this moment, is a system that was set up for success for a particular group. Whether you're able to access that success in that group is one thing, but it's set up that way so that that access is there. And that's all privilege means to me. So when I look at kind of where we are and, and what we're thinking about is really an openness to be honest and vulnerable and emotional on the full gamut as we really try to ferret through what this is. So I, I guess for me, I look at the lens I don't know, I guess on a lot of different levels. So I'm gonna take you back to my high school really quickly to kind of help with this. So um, while, I grew, while I did grow up in Chicago, I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee uh, from my sophomore year of high school. Um, Knoxville and Chicago are very different um, in terms of their racial makeup. Um, my parents were concerned that a public school education there wasn't gonna be good for me, so I went to a private school. In my particular graduating class, there were 100 people, three of which were Black. I was the only female. So that's just 3%. Mm. Um, and so what I felt there was this enormous weight. So one of the things that I felt, and this could be right or wrong, I felt that I had to prove to them that I wasn't there on a scholarship. I felt like I had to prove to them that my parents were writing a check just like their parents were. But then and I also- interrupt you really quick? And just to yes. be really clear, so let's just really be transparent. Yeah. When we're talking about them, we're talking about white people. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And my school was full of affluent people. So like the, I, I won't say who they are, but they were full of <laughs> affluent people, like nationally affluent, like if I said, this person's son went to school with me. He'd be like, oh, wow, their product is in the grocery store. Kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So, and it was, so it was okay. But the, the feeling was that those of us who were of color, um, you at least looked at initially as you probably got their own scholarship versus really having to pay. Um, and, and what I will say in being honest is that could have been, partially our own insecurity, because it was never something that was spoken. So a lot of the things that we deal with are unspoken, and I think now we have to speak them, and we have to address them, and we have to really talk about them. And I think on both sides, we have to be open to be uncomfortable, um, because these are uncomfortable things to talk about. If I organically really tell you how I 
feel as a person of color all the time. I need somebody who is not of color to be open to hear it without feeling that I'm attacking them, but I'm really just speaking my truth. Mm-hmm. But on the same token, I have to give you as a person who's not of color without the same experiences, the opportunity to have a dialogue about either what my words meant, how you perceive them, and even if you're not sure the validity of them. But we have to just really be able to talk. No, I, I appreciate that. So when you said something really interesting to me, you talked about you weren't sure that that was that perception of you're here only because of scholarship and you can't afford to come here for was it feels to me that I've had conversations like that before. So is that something that you feel just in general? And I don't like to stereotype, but it seems probably appropriate in this conversation uh, that that is, uh, well, yeah, of course she's on scholarship because she's black. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's how it feels. That's how it feels. So as a person of color, it always feels that you have to prove yourself. Mm. At least in my experience, I won't say that across the board. And what I also will say is that as a person of color, I have been really fortunate to um, have been in areas where my struggle hasn't been the typical struggle. So I'm fortunate my parents have now been married for 50 years. I come from um, great-grandparents who I knew on both sides. My grandparents were all married over 50 years before their spouse passed. Um, Nobody in my immediate family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, has ever gotten a divorce. So that's, that's amazing. You know, that's an amazing story for me. That is not necessarily a typical story. Well, so, that's, too. that's that's amazing whether you're black, white, whatever color you are, right? That's that's incredible yeah. family structure. Yeah. So that's been amazing for me. So I've I've been able to see things and experience things that have been different, but at the same time I still have the same fears and concerns as a person of color. So it seems like some of that would exempt me. But that doesn't make me any less afraid if I get pulled over by a police officer or if I'm in a situation where I'm the minority and how I feel that I have to either represent my whole race or really excel and shine so that I could just be average. So I guess that's kind of the interesting thing that having had some extra perks in life doesn't necessarily change some of those feelings. So is it fair to say that um, the system that exists and I very much realize, even looking back on my life to where I am now, um, there is absolutely a system that um, I benefit from purely because I was born white. Mm-hmm. That the perceptions, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, the perceptions that exist or the reality of of those that exist um it feels like it's 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 so um uh inbred in culture if that's the right way to say it that whether like you said whether that you experience that or not the perception of it seems to always be present yes. is that a, is that a good way to frame it or i agree i think that that's true um i think it i think it really 
goes back to how we all became a part of this nation. If we were to even go back that far, um, if we look at um, how this land was taken from indigenous people and then others were brought from their native country here to a foreign country to then work the land, but not still be considered of the land. Mm -hmm. And how I think that from the very genesis of how we got to be, I think that's the foundation. And I think what we've been afraid to do is talk about the foundation to say, you know what, we're here now, but how we started off is really messed up. So maybe if we can rethink how we move forward, then maybe we can grow. But it's so personal because none of us were part of the first people, right? Mm -hmm. Your people might have been part of the first people and my people might have been a part of the first people, but we didn't make those initial decisions. You didn't make the initial decision if your family were to have slaves. You didn't make that initial decision. As a result, you're benefiting from it, but you didn't make it. So if I say something about that, that could feel really personal, like, but I didn't do that. But like you just said, it's been the benefit of that has continued generationally because we never addressed how it happened initially. See, Does I, that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I, I think this is the, the crux of some of the challenging conversations uh, I have with my white friends and I'm by the way I'm, I am not sitting here professing that I have it figured out I'm not sitting here professing that um, uh, you know I even know how to talk about it appropriately but I feel the only way to move forward is to have conversations and that are hard ones and and it's okay if you say something wrong or inappropriate as long as you're open to hearing why and shifting um, is, is at least where I'm at. Um, so to what you just said, um, how would you answer if, if we didn't know each other? Right. And I'd say, well, that's not my fault. I'm, I'm a white person. Right. And, and, and I'm not racist. Right. So absolutely. So I would probably say, while you might not be racist, are you anti-racist? And I think there's a big difference between that. So yeah, you could not be racist, but if you're not anti-racist, then you're still contributing to the problem. And just as you didn't contribute to that, that wasn't you, it wasn't me either. And so all of those things that are thought about, about black people, which really started when we were slaves, about we were dangerous or we were violent or we were all of these different things, um, it makes us become a problem that needs to be solved or fixed. And it doesn't look at us as a person. And I think that that's something that's continued, that's never been addressed. And so while you in your other role that I'm addressing, um, I would say, if you're not combating that actively, then you're a part of the problem. Yes. So let me stay in this role play. If this okay. is a, if this is probably going to be the <laughs> the easiest way is, is is so really my hope is people listening to this uh, if they're not listening to or watching or or reading you know which I feel is you know those key steps to being anti racist right is is understanding listening and asking well what well what do I do then 
you know, I mean, I put my, my Instagram square was, was, you know, blacked out that day. What else do I do? Right. Continue to have these conversations and continue to allow yourself to be challenged and to be open to hear from a different point of view. I will not say that it's not difficult. I think it's difficult on both sides, but also I want us to take equal responsibility in moving forward. I want us to have the conversations, but it also is important that, that you know, white people do learn, do take steps to make a change and not just rely on, you know, someone of color to explain it or someone of color to make them feel better because it's hard to be the person who is the one who is the object and the healer. That's a really tough place to be in. Um, from, I'm just going to speak from my own experience. I feel like one of the things that we do as people of color, and I think it ha happened because of slavery, is we tend to forgive easily or we, um, it's easier for us to kind of, I don't want to say gloss over because that's not the right word, but we make it better faster. So instead of letting it sit and fester, because right now we're sitting and festering. So let me be clear. We're, we're in that point of sitting and festering, but for so long we've um, been the apologist or we've prayed it away or God will make it better. And we've done all those things. Part of it is just to keep our own sanity. Um, those are the little pieces that we've had to hold on to, to be able to be whole in a society that really feels like it's not for you. Um, so if we can each take responsibility to, to learn, um, to learn more and to be open. I, I can't say that more. I think the openness is really what's going to help move us forward. Um, and I don't want to pretend that these are not difficult conversations. They are, but we have to have them if we're going to get anywhere. Mm. So I think one of the other conversations uh, that happens is about the police. And um, I don't even know the question to, to frame here, uh, but uh, I could talk about the statistics all day long. I could talk about the absolute mass incarceration numbers. Those are, I don't know how anyone can argue those. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe as a, as a, as a mom and, person of color in the community. I don't even know how many people know about the talk, you know? So can you just share your experience there or how are you going to even talk to your son if you haven't already? Yeah. I know he's pretty so, young. Yeah, he is young. So I haven't had it yet, but in my mind, even the way that I socialize him, sometimes I have to be careful. Um, at one point the talk was, you know, um, you know, when you're, when you're out there, be careful. Uh, remember that they see you differently. Um, if you see a police officer, acknowledge them. Um, make sure that they can see your hands at all times. Make sure that you speak clearly. Um, make sure that you don't you know, make any sudden moves. So all of those things to make yourself seem acceptable and non-threatening um, and acceptable 
Um, there was a time when, you know, you would think that if somebody was in khaki shorts and maybe a polo top, it would be okay. But even now we're realizing that that doesn't matter as much. Um, and so it's a way to prepare your child for the world that they're going to be a part of, which is really scary. Um, I think about, so I've had the conversation with my husband and, um, you know, if I'm like, hey, where are you going? It's not because I don't trust you. It's because I'm trying to get a mental timeline of when I should expect you home. So that if that timeline has expired, after a certain amount of time, I'm worried. I'm worried what's happened to you. Um, my husband is a tall, dark brown skin, um, former football player looking guy, right? And so he could possibly look intimidating. Um, my husband also drives a nice car. Um, and to me, those two together can be problematic depending on what neighborhood he's in and who he might come up against. And so those are the things that I think about. As I think about my son, my son is very rambunctious. He's full of energy, full of life, just effervescent, just a, a ray of sunshine to me. But I wonder if that's seen as a ray of sunshine to someone else. So if he goes into a store where there are people who don't look like him, he's going to speak to everybody because he doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that's taken kindly if he as a little black boy speaks to a little white child. Is it still okay? And especially if that's a little girl because of our history with that. Um, my son is probably going to be big like his dad. So when you look at him, he may not look three. He may look four, he may look five. And so when you're doing that, then if you're expecting him to be five, but his mannerisms are that of a three-year-old, then you're judging him improperly. So then as a mom, I'm thinking, what, do I, what safeguards do I need to put in place that I don't scare him because I don't want him to be fearful, but I bring an awareness to him so that he doesn't make any missteps. And then I play in my mind, but what is a misstep? Is kindness a misstep? Is speaking a misstep? Mm -hmm. But when you're a person of color, those are things that you think about. And so, you know, preparing your child for the world is, is one thing that we do. Um, as, you're, as you talk about, you know, police, it really is scary, to be honest. Um, my friends and I, we kind of talk back and forth, like, what is the feeling that you get when you get pulled over? Um, and we, we juxtapose that in our mind with what we think it might be like if we weren't a person of color. Like when I get pulled over, it's, are your hands on the steering wheel? Where's your purse? If you need to get your ID, how do you explain that? What do you need to do? And I instantly get nervous. Mm -hmm. I break out into a, like a light sweat and I get anxiety instantly. And if it's because I don't know what I did, I'm even more afraid. Like if I ran a stoplight up me but I'm still scared but if I don't know what it is like a, a tail light is out you don't know that until they pull you over you're like oh this could go really bad so you're just hands on the steering wheel looking straight forward acknowledging them trying to smile trying to seem unthreatening but those are all things that just go through your mind as it's happening um, and then when you're finished when you're okay, it's the biggest sigh of relief, like, thank God I'm alive or I'm okay. And that's a real thing. It, it really is something that happens. And 
when you were young and, and you know, what, what age were you when your parents talked to you? So I think mine happened when I was a little earlier. I mean, a little late. Let's try that one more time. <laughs> a little older. Um, but it happened because I was called out of my name. Um, I was in South Carolina and I was at a dance competition. Um, I probably was about 11 or 12. And I was crossing the street with my friends and somebody said, in, get out the street. And I remember how hurt I was because I couldn't believe that somebody would say something so mean to me and we were just crossing the street. Hmm. I remember looking back and it was a pickup truck, very stereotypical, a, t- a pickup truck with a Confederate flag in the back window, you know, one of those decals. Mm-hmm. And I remember that, like I can't close my eyes and see myself crossing the street right now. And it changed my whole experience um, from the rest of the time because then I was afraid of all the people who didn't look like us. And it was a mixed competition, very few um, black dance troops. We had traveled from Chicago to the South and you know, it was a new experience for us. And it was just scary um, at that point. But my mom explained to me, you know, what that meant and why that happened. Um, I had a similar experience, but I didn't get the official talk um, when I was in third grade. Um, I went to Beasley Academic Center here in Chicago, and so it was really one of the premier um, academic centers. So we we were really across the street from the Robert Taylor Home, so we were in the heart of the inner city, but we had all types of experiences. So from first grade through eighth grade, you'd learned a foreign language. There was sewing, there was art, there was an Olympic-sized swimming pool, there was dance, typing, computer, all of that. So it was an amazing place to be. And so there, your classes were tiered. So you had five different levels. So And you tested into whichever class you went into. So I was in the top class, and the majority of my class was Black. And there were just a couple of white kids in the class with me. Um, but in other classes, there were more white kids, which means they had tested a little bit lower and my teacher was white and she did not like that at all. Now, mind you, I've been a nerd my whole life. I'm okay with that, but I was a nerd then in third grade, especially. Um, but at lunch, she would make us sit in quiet lunch or silent lunch because she just didn't like us. Um, she would segregate She wouldn't segregate us. So we were all in the same lunchroom, but she would make us be quiet. Like we couldn't talk or we would be in trouble. Um, and then there were other privileges that she would take away from us. So ultimately our parents had to get together and uh, we ended up getting her fired. Um, it wasn't until the end of the year because it was a process, but that was where, you know, my mom first kind of told me that, um, you know, sometimes people don't like you because your skin is a little darker, but I didn't have that. Yeah. Didn't have the official talk then. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, let me go back to, uh, something that I don't know if this is true or not, but I was just thinking about the social dynamic of that classroom and what is it, what is it like? It feels to me, um, if, uh, this may be a stupid question. So, so please extend me. No questions are stupid. Yeah. So here you are, if, if you're in a group in a room of, with other people of color, um, do you feel that you can be more 
Nicole and more yourself, more generally who you are, um, more so than if your room that was more mixed or you were one of, you know, um, 15 students and you're the only person of color in the room. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, for, for example, so I went to, I chose to go to Spelman college, which is a historically black college. Um, and so the majority of the kids, it's, it's not just a historical black college. It's rated right. Well. it right. Number one, you're right about okay. that. Thank you very much. Um, so, and, and I chose to go there because I really wanted to be in a learning environment with individuals with similar experiences, but different experiences, because we're still varied, even across the, we call it the diaspora. We're still varied in our experience. But that was one of the things that I didn't have to deal with in terms of my learning environment was my color. Um, and so it was an amazing experience for me to be in that setting, and we call it Black Girl Magic, where Black Girl Magic is born. Uh, where we learned how to be fearless and um, strong and confident in ways that in a mixed environment, I don't know if I could have gotten those same um, lessons. Well, you do you, you have a, you have your master's degree? I do. And you have what else? That's all for now. Um, I haven't gotten a doctorate or anything. I started one, but I haven't finished it. I got very pregnant. I remember we talked about it. So, yeah. But, so was your master's experience, was that more in a mixed setting? It was. And it was different at that time because I was still working. Um, it wasn't as insular. Um, so it was a different experience. But it was okay, I feel like, because I had gotten the Spelman Foundation. So then at that point, I felt like I was unshakable. So everything <laughs> else was good. So I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was older too. So I think that might've had something to do with it. So <clears throat> you, you know, work in the Brownsville community and uh, that's a very traditional uh, community in the sense that that's where a lot of the, the, um, the migration happened right throughout the, yes. the country. So in Brownsville, um, uh, as Pastor Harris explained to me, it was named um, particularly for that because people of color lived in that neighborhood. Yes. Lived in the neighborhood. So what is, what is that atmosphere feel like right now? Um, can you explain that? Yeah. So two things. So one is we haven't been out that much because of, of, of at first there was COVID and then there were just the unrest we haven't been out a lot, um, but we have been keeping a pulse on the community. And I can even talk about my community. I live a little farther south than Bronzeville. Um, it's very tense. It's very tense. Um, there's a lot of need that's here um, that's been exacerbated by everything that's gone on. And there is a frustration of, do we have to go through this again? And what is it going to take for it to be different this time? Mm -hmm. um, I think with looking at George Floyd and what happened with him specifically, um, we saw what happened, but it's also been somewhat of a metaphor of how we feel 
um, when you feel that systems are not in your favor, it feels like no matter what you do, it's not okay. No matter how much you cry out and you say, I'm hurting or I can't breathe or, you know, I'm in pain, it's not listened to and it's almost ignored. And I think what did it for me with this video was I felt like there was just righteous indignation with the officer. Mm. He had such a cavalier attitude. Um, his sunglasses didn't even move from the middle of his head. He looked off and he had his hands in his pocket while this man was saying he can't breathe. Please, please I can't breathe. Figuratively, I felt like sometimes I can't breathe. Um, there are moments when I cry, when I think about my son mm -hmm. and what this world is going to be like for him and what can I do to make it a better place for him so that he has a chance to live and grow. Um, I think I shared with you, I have a cousin who was in Memphis and he fell asleep behind the wheel waiting for his girlfriend to come out from work. And he was killed by the police in Memphis. They say that he pulled a gun. It was the middle of winter. His windows were up and he was shot from behind. He was shot in the back. So how he pulled a gun from the front and then you ran around to the back to shoot him, in, it just doesn't make sense. But the police officer who was responsible for it had, I don't even remember how many citations he had. He had, uh, um, he had crashed a cruiser. He had been put on desk duty. He had been suspended. Like he had a whole record. And if we flip that, if we, if that was a person of color in the community who had a record, just a regular record, not a police officer, he would have no chances in life. No chances. Everything would be stacked against him because of his record. But this police officer was allowed to kill again. And that's just, you know, those are, that's the, frustration that's there. Um, yeah, it's the frustration that's there. And we've seen it so many times. We've seen so many people of color um, be killed at the hand of the police and then be vilified on the other side of it. So it's, oh, well, you know, he did this or, you know, he was a bad person or he was illegally selling cigarettes or he had a counterfeit 20. Okay, a counterfeit $20 bill never ever justified but is it justified to take his life over a counterfeit twenty dollar bill when we know that there have been people who are not of color who we knew shot up a church they were detained and given a meal and put in the back of a police car so those are the kind of things that we can't explain away mm. and when they're diminished or like I said before, we're vilified to justify why it was okay to kill us. It makes it tough. It really does. What can, um, I know we're having this conversation. I'm trying to do something, right? What are things that um, you think people of non-color, um, should be doing, couldn't be doing. Yeah. I think it's important that when you see injustice, 
that you're not silent. So when you see things happen that are wrong, um, say something. Um, if we're honest, silence is consent. So even if you see something bad and you don't say something, you're silently consenting to it. Um, and I'm not saying start a rally, start a protest. Um, but if you, if you see something, say something. That's number one. When you're in an atmosphere where microaggressions are present, acknowledge that. Call them out. Don't let it go unspoken. Um, because what I will say is, and I alluded to it earlier, it's hard to be the object of it and the healer. So it's difficult when you're in a situation where you hear a microaggression or you see something wrong and then you have to be the black person to bring it up because then you're like angry or you're unreasonable or you're biased because you're black and you're trying to defend yourself versus somebody objectively who really sees, no, that was wrong or that was messed up saying that. And um, eventually we'll get to a place where everybody's voice is equal, but right now it's not. And a white voice right now is more powerful than a black voice. And so if, if we had more allies who are really speaking up and not just in the background saying, oh, that's so terrible, you know, they shouldn't have done that to you, but really speaking out to, to those in their community that either doesn't have awareness or consciousness, I think that that would be really, really helpful. I never thought about this question just because I don't, when I think about police and again maybe this is more of my bias i only think of white police mm -hmm. um for police of color uh do you have any insight of what it's like for them i i don't necessarily have a lot of insight i know police officers um i grew up with you know um some of my friends whose fathers were police officers um so I feel like growing up, it was a little different. Um, we had the campaign of Officer Friendly and Officer Friendly came to your school and they kind of knew you and it felt like they were more a part of your community. And so from that perspective, I feel like, especially if you were to see a black officer that you would feel great, you would feel a little safer because that was somebody who looked like you. Um, I think now that it could be I think with all officers, they're good officers and bad officers, no matter what the color is. Um, and so I think it's hard for good officers, but also good officers of color during this time, because right now, most officers are being vilified. Like you look at them and something's wrong. And then in some communities, officers may be considered like a traitor at this point because you're on that side. So I don't know what it's like um, specifically. There are a few officers that I know well, and I check on them on a weekly basis, like, hey, how are you? How's it going? Uh, when things get really crazy outside, I send a message to them or to their family member just to say, listen, I don't know how I can help, but I'm thinking about you. Um, so I, I, won't, I don't even know how to speak for them. Mm -hmm. um, I can only imagine that it's tough, though. So <clears throat> representation, I think one thing I forgot to, to ask you is that it is that concept that I think many, many miss. And, and what I mean by that is 
um, you know, people don't feel, I know you went to, um, you had a different um, college experience, but, you know, often in the classroom, you know, people of color not represented or, you know, pick your workplace, workforce, whatever. Can you talk about the, the power of, of that? Yeah. Um, it's very important to go somewhere and see someone like you. Um, I don't remember the, the specific percentages, um, but I think it's in the teens. If a child of color has one black teacher, but it goes into, I think like around the 30th percent if they have two and that's their um, trajectory towards college. So it really makes a difference if they see somebody who looks like them because it opens up possibilities. It lets you know that something is possible. It lets you know that there are smart people out there who look like you versus sometimes what you're, what you just see in the media. Um, I think everybody has a role to play in all of this. Um, I can't say that it's solely the role of white people to have us represented well. It's my role, let's say for my son, that I show him positive role models in my community so that he also has a roadmap. But I think it's also important to understand that the playing field isn't as level to have that as a possibility, which gets back to what I talked about, about privilege. When the system feels, I'd even, I'd even venture to say is set up, that you have to be better, you have to work harder, um, you have to do more to be average, that's, that's just tough. So if you feel like getting all A's is good, getting all A pluses is where you feel like you need to be. Mm. And if you think about that, just from a mental standpoint, if you feel like my good isn't good enough, and you're, uh, that, that's just a burden and a weight that you're on. So getting back to your question about representation, because I don't want to get off of there, um, it's immensely important to have all colors represented. If we are truly a nation that's a melting pot, it should be represented in everything. It should be represented in successes and in failures. It shouldn't just be, so you didn't talk about this, but I'll morph into this a little bit. Um, when a lot of this started happening and you know we had the riots and all of that, we had people on both sides who said, oh, you wanna be mad when the white person kills a black person, but what about black on black crime? Right? We hear that, that becomes the retort. Black on black crime is something that was created and lifted up to make black people look worse. In any community, there's gonna be a higher incidence of race against race than it is outside. And so there's no other race that has that tagline to violence in their community. You don't hear about white on white crime. You don't hear about Asian on Asian crime. You don't hear about Mexican on Mexican. You don't hear any of that. You only hear black on black crime. And that is just 
a way to continue the narrative that we're dangerous and that we need to be subdued or we're animals or those types of things. Um, and so while we all have to deal with violence and we all need to pull violence back, we have to be honest about why certain things get lifted up. And so going back to representation, the good and the bad needs to be represented equally. Right after George Floyd's death, you, you know, many um, in all communities, I feel um, I'm going to use this term I was excited about, not about what happened to George, but I was excited about that it felt like there was something different um, because of that horrible video. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, I would post Black Lives Matter and then someone would retort with All Lives Matter. And I would respond, you don't get what I'm trying to say here. And then they would have, they'd want to have a conversation. I was like, I want to have a conversation with you, but not over social media. Let's video chat. Let's have a call. Let's get together and have a coffee. Let's have a conversation. How, how, would, how would you respond to that conversation? Yeah. So saying that Black Lives Matter is not negating that all lives matter. It's lifting up the urgency at this moment about what's happening. And it's saying, we need your help in this because all lives are not counting, but specifically black lives are not, are not counting. Um, when you look at it and, you know, to have a conversation, um, I would say thinking about all of the times where you've seen a black person being killed on TV at the hands of an officer or another person. How many times have you seen that scenario played out, played out and it was a white person? Zero. Exactly. So over and over and over again, we see ourselves, our sons, our husbands, our fathers, our sisters killed at the hands of another. And nobody is really fully accountable for what has happened. And so if we look at it from that lens, lifting up Black Lives Matter is just saying, look at what's happening. Help us. Join with us to say our lives matter. And I think that's the biggest point of it all. We're not negating that somebody else's life is not important, but we are saying we need your help because we're in a dire situation. Thank you for that. Yeah. So that's all my questions. Um, is there anything when you were thinking about, I know I sent you some questions just to think about, cause I want to make sure that, you know, you knew I wanted to jump right in. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you want to share or, or, or anything that came to mind before this that we didn't cover or, or you would like uh, me to make sure I, I, um, I have in this. Um, I just think that, um, Similar to what I said in the beginning, um, really being honest about history, I think is very important to this narrative and to know and understand that people of color are not just making things up. So the way that we were brought over in slavery and the way that we were um, demanded to help to build this nation. 
So we were strong enough to build the nation, but we're not valued enough to be a part of the nation. Mm. And then things that were set in place. So there's several institutions that were created because of black people, but we still are not benefiting from it. So the police was really slave watches. That's how the police was even created. It was to watch slaves and it was to subdue us and it was to put fear in us so that we would be more malleable so that we wouldn't, you know, have any insurrections. And so that morphed into what we know now as the police, but the genesis of it was to watch black people. And so it still does that to this day at disproportionate levels. Um, If we think about the insurance industry, the insurance industry was created so that it could insure property, the slaves for the slave owners, so that they wouldn't lose their money in their investment of property. So now we have this whole insurance industry on different levels, but it was all because they wanted to secure their property, which was black people. And so from the beginning, we were not valued as people. We were things or property or monetary value, but we were never, we were never a person. And so looking at that and understanding that that's how we started and we've just built from there is tough. And then when things happen, not just sweeping it away, like, oh, you're just making a big deal. Like if you think about things like voter suppression, how that's real. Um, And why is that so real? But what that's also done to our community is it's made people feel invaluable. So it's kind of like chaining the elephant to the peg. And over time, you can take the chain off their leg and the elephant won't go any farther because that's just what they know. They've been held so long. So whether in acting through voter suppression or the results of it, it's happening. And so just really being honest about all that, and maybe even if for a minute, thinking, what would it be like if every time my child left the house and I wasn't sure if they would come home? How would that make me feel as a person? Would I be okay? And what if I didn't feel that they were safe outside of my watch? Um, Just some of those, just beginning some of those questions and to think, and maybe if we can be more empathic with each other, that that's a beginning. Nicole, before I let you go, thank you so much for being on the show. I have to ask you a question. Um, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that I wake up every day and I can try. That's what gives me hope. Um, I'm dedicated to doing my best to make my little world and this big world a better place. Um, I have a personal mantra of changing the world one family at a time. So if I can show kindness to someone and that affects change in their life, or if I can do something that makes someone better, that makes someone else better, kind of back to that pond, the ripple in the pond, um, then I feel like I'm doing my part. So I'm never gonna stop trying. So I think the fact that every day I can try again is what gives me hope. I love it. I'm going to be there next year. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
I appreciate it. I'm, I'm thankful for this time that we've had to talk. Um, always open to talking with you. Um, I think it's important to have conversations. I really do. Um, and the tough ones, the ones that are uncomfortable that kind of make your skin crawl and your head hurt and all that stuff. I think it's important. And I think that we have to be able to be honest with each other and um, be vulnerable with each other because this is tough. It's very tough. Um, the path forward is going to take collaboration. No one person has the right answer. No one group has the right answer. Um, but it's really working together to get there. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. For more on Nicole and Bright Star Community Outreach, please check out the show notes at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. I'm not ending the show in our normal way. I just want to say I hope you share this conversation or others you come across so we can collectively make our country and world better. Please do not sit this moment out. Listen, learn, have the hard conversations. Peacefully march and protest. Donate what you can and please vote. My hope is that we all do something because if we are silent, we are all part of the problem. Thanks for listening.